0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This talk is about moral relativism and its relationship to social and political life. First, I'm going to explain what relativism is Second, I'm going to make some remarks concerning what people are relativists about. Third, I'll say a lot of things about relativism, about morality, moral relativism, including why we don't need it. Finally, I'll wrap things up with a thought about why why life is better without relativism. Relativism, roughly speaking, is the idea that there is no absolute truth that's the same for everyone, but instead, something is true for one person, but not necessarily for another. The opposite of relativism might be called absolutism if you could remove from that word the political connotations of tyranny or just the nasty sound of being way too dogmatic. An example of relativism might be if someone said, Maybe it's true for you that sex should be reserved for marriage, but it's not true for me. Or, for another example, someone might say, Maybe it's true for you that there is no God, but for me, there is a God. Now, right away, we have to be careful not to get tripped up by language. Sometimes, in contemporary English, expressions like that are just a way of expressing the fact that people don't agree. So someone might say something like this, for the Greek philosopher Plato, humans have a soul that survives death, but for the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, there is no soul at all. And all that they would mean if they said that was the following, Plato believes that humans have a soul that survives death, and Hobbes believes that humans have no soul. Someone who said this would not actually be asserting that one thing was true for Hobbes and another thing was true for Plato. They could say say that whole thing about Hobbes and Plato while agreeing with Plato or while agreeing with Hobbes. So right at the outset, I just want to say we have to be on the lookout. We need to make sure when we're really talking about relativism, And when we are using words that sound like a discussion of relativism, but are really just a way of talking about the boring old fact that people sometimes disagree. Now, actually, relativism rejects the idea that people disagree. If I say it's true for me that God exists, and you say it's true for you that God doesn't exist, we aren't disagreeing. It's similar to when I say that my favorite ice cream flavor is coffee and you say that yours is chocolate. We aren't disagreeing. We're just expressing our preferences. So if relativism is true, then when people say God exists for me but not for you, they aren't bringing up, they aren't discussing disagreement. They're in a sense discussing the the thought that people live in parallel realities. Now, to tell you the truth, I really suspect that the very notion of relativism really makes no sense at all. And by that, I don't mean that I think relativism is false, but something stronger. I suspect that relativism is meaningless, but I don't want to get into that in this talk. I want to just assume that it's meaningful, that it makes a kind of sense, and then to discuss a few issues. What people are relativists about, and why people think that relativism is so important, and finally why we can do just fine without relativism. All right. So there are different types of relativism, and they can distinguished by what they can be distinguished on the basis of what the relativism is about. A super strong version of relativism says that every truth is relative and that there are no absolute or non-relative truths anywhere. It's true for me that eating meat is okay, but it might not be true for you. It's true for me that the Bible is inspired, it might not be true for you. It's true for me that two plus two equals four, but it might not be true for you. So let's call this total relativism. Okay, you're a relativist about everything. Now total relativism seems like a hopeless theory because it undermines itself. If total relativism is true, then everything that's true is true in only a relative way, including total relativism itself. But if total relativism is only relatively true, then it might not be true for me. So let's leave total relativism behind. It's not a very interesting theory. Much more interesting are various types of what we might call partial relativism. A partial relativist theory says that some truths are relative, but not all. So, for example, someone might say that political truths are relative, but mathematics and physics aren't. In some realms, there are absolute truths, but in others, truth is relative. The first thing to say about partial relativism is that it's not self-undermining. If you say that only some truths are relative while others are absolute, then you can say that partial relativism itself is one of the absolute truths. Partial relativism doesn't apply to partial relativism itself, but that's okay because partial relativism never said that all truths are relative. The second thing to say is that although partial relativism isn't self-undermining, that doesn't make it true. It might be false, but just for some other reason. The third thing to say is that there are many different possible kinds of partial relativism. For any partial realm of beliefs that you can think of, there could be a partial relativism applied to that realm. So someone could say that not all truths are relative but moral truth is always relative. Someone could say that not all truths are relative but truths about art and literature are always relative. Someone could say that not all truths are relative but truths about religion are always relative and so on. Partial relativism that focuses on morality or ethics is extremely common in our society. This kind of relativism is called ethical relativism or moral relativism. Many people believe in moral relativism, or anyway, they think they do. I want to focus on moral relativism for a while now. Moral relativism says that although not all truths are relative, moral truths are. Claims about what is right or wrong are never absolutely true. They are only true for this or that person. It may be true for you that lying is always wrong, but that doesn't mean it's true for me. Now, why would someone believe in moral relativism? One reason you sometimes hear is this. People don't agree about morality, so therefore morality is relative. Or here's another version of the same kind of thought. You can't convince other people about right and wrong, so therefore morality is relative. Now this is not a good reason for believing in moral relativism. Just because people can't agree on some truth doesn't mean that that truth isn't objective. It might be out there in all its absoluteness and glory without everyone being able to agree on it. Maybe it's out there, but really hard to see. Maybe it's out there, but some people are blind or stupid or whatever. Maybe it can be proved, but the proofs are really complicated, and most people can't follow them. Or maybe it can't be proved at all, but it's true anyway. In short, the fact of disagreement, or the fact that it's so difficult to convince others on moral questions, doesn't prove there's no truth. It doesn't prove that there's nothing to disagree about or to prove. There's a lot more to be said about whether moral relativism is true. To give a full account, we would have to start by thinking through important background questions, like what morality is in the first place. Then we would have to look at all the arguments people offer for thinking that moral claims are relative. Then we would have to ask how those arguments could be responded to, and what a good non-relative theory of morality would look like. To discuss all of that would take all night. In fact, it would take probably a few single semester courses, right? So I can't go into it all. Luckily, I think it's okay not to do that for our purposes tonight. And that's because, as far as I can tell, almost no one actually believes in moral relativism. They may say they do, but they really don't. They don't, for example, think that it's just relative whether torturing small children is wrong. I say this to their credit. If I said to them, well, it's true for me that torturing small children is acceptable, they would say, sorry, pal, it's not true for you. And if you think it is, then you are seriously wrong. Okay, admittedly, there are a few people who really do believe in moral relativism, but pretty much they're all professional philosophers. And that should tell you something. (laughs) I think that most people who seem to be relativists actually are something else. There are people who believe in moral non-relativism, but they use the language of moral relativism as a weapon for warding off certain evils. It will be easier to make clear what I mean by giving an example. Let's suppose you see three people in the street, Rocky, Nick, and Ella. Rocky is stoning Nick to death because Nick committed fornication. Ella says, hey, stop, Rocky. Stoning Nick is wrong. You shouldn't force your values on him. Don't you know that what's wrong for you might be right for him? Morality is relative, so you have no right to act in this way. Okay, so if you're having trouble keeping track of the names, Rocky is the guy who's stoning someone. (laughs) Nick is the guy who committed fornication. And Ella is the relativist. Okay it took me a while. Okay, I don't think it would be too surprising to hear Ella say these things, but notice something weird. Ella is telling Rocky that it's wrong to stone Nick for committing fornication. Ella is obviously not a moral relativist, but then Ella goes on to affirm moral relativism and her attempt to get Rocky not to commit a moral wrong Ella is using moral relativism in order to support a non-relative moral claim. She's using moral relativism in support of moral non-relativism. I said that this is weird. It's actually worse than weird. It's incoherent and self-undermining. Above, I said that moral relativism, whatever its flaws might be, isn't self-undermining in itself, and I'm not backing away from that now. I am saying, however, that it's self-undermining to use moral relativism in defense of moral absolutism. If your appeal to moral relativism is true, then you shouldn't be using it to support a non-relative moral claim. In fact, if Ella makes that mistake, Rocky can simply turn to her and say, is morality really relative? Well, then, it's right for me to stone Nick. Why would Ella act in this incoherent and self-undermining way? Well, for one thing, it's probably the case that Ella hasn't had a chance to attend enough talks sponsored by the Timistic Institute. But I think that there's really something else going on here that's worthy of reflection. Ella is trying to prevent Rocky from wrongly interfering in Nick's life. Ella thinks either that Rocky shouldn't interfere with Nick's choices at all, or else that he's interfering in the wrong way. For example, maybe Ella thinks that it would be okay for Rocky to act, sorry, maybe Ella thinks that it would be okay for Rocky to ask Nick out for coffee and have a little chat about sexual immorality, but that bashing Nick's head in is taking things too far. Now perhaps you can begin to see the connection with social life and politics. When Ellen makes use of the language of moral relativism, she does so to foster a certain social and political good, namely the preservation of a space within which people can make certain choices without fear of suffering, undue pressure or violence. But since she really does think that that good, the goodness of having that kind of space, that, that good is an absolute good, an objective good, she's not a relativist. And her appeal to relativism is part of an attempt to accomplish something non-relativistic. Let's help Ella find a way out by distinguishing Ella's tool from Ella's goal. Ella's goal is to protect Nick from a certain kind of interference. That's her goal. Her tool is the affirmation of relativism. As we've seen, Ella's choice of tool undermines her goal, but we can ask whether a different tool might enable Ella to reach the same goal, namely the goal of protecting Nick from wrongful interference. One alternative tool is the distinction between making an ethical claim and forcing people to go along with an ethical claim. You can think that something is morally wrong without thinking that it's right to force other people to conform. For example, I think fornication is morally wrong, but I don't think I have any right to force people not to commit fornication. Likewise, you can think that something is morally obligatory without thinking it's right to force others to conform. I think that helping your parents when they are old is morally obligatory, but I don't think I have any right to force people to help their parents when they're old. Notice, by the way, that when we talk about forcing people, this can take two forms, non-political and political. Rocky is trying to force Nick to not act in a certain way, but he's not doing so politically he would be forcing him politically if he tried to get Nick's behavior criminalized. Rocky's kind of like being a vigilante. All right, so this distinction between making a claim and enforcing a claim might sound obvious. And maybe in the abstract it is, but in practice, people get confused. If you merely make a moral claim, People will sometimes say something like, how dare you try to force your values on me? So, for example, suppose someone says, I think it's wrong to commit fornication. The person who says this might not be trying to force anything on anyone in any way. But we all know it wouldn't be surprising if someone reacted by saying, how dare you force me to act in accordance with your values? This isn't really a logical reaction, but it happens all the time and avoiding it requires mental discipline. Perhaps you could guess already the way in which I think this is relevant for our topic. Ella doesn't need to appeal to moral relativism in order to get Rocky to refrain from using force on Nick. She can hold on to moral absolutism, but then appeal to the principle that knowing that someone is acting wrongly doesn't give you a right to force them to act in a different way. This is a much more logical strategy for her because it isn't self undermining and incoherent. Likewise, shifting to the political level Ella doesn't need to appeal to moral relativism in order to dissuade Rocky from criminalizing Nick's behavior. She can firmly embrace moral absolutism, moral non-relativism, including moral non-relativism about the topic of fornication, but then say that although fornication is wrong, it's not the sort of thing that should be criminalized. The point in both cases is that she doesn't need relativism to get Rocky to not interfere in Nick's life. Okay, so that was the first alternative tool, the distinction between making a moral claim and forcing someone to go along with your claim. Once you see this difference, this distinction, you don't need relativism. Now, I want to go on and talk about a second tool, but before I do that, I want to pause and say something about the question of interference in other people's lives. I have granted that some interference is bad, but I don't want to give the impression that I think that it's always wrong to interfere with other people's decisions. First, I think it's fairly clear that at least sometimes it's acceptable and even obligatory to tell someone they are going astray. I know my life has been improved by other people calling me out on things, and I hope I would have the guts and the charity to do the same for others in the right way at the right time. Second, there really are times when we have to not just tell people that what they're doing is wrong, but block their actions. Sometimes we really have to intervene. In this silly example I gave earlier, Ella should not just argue with Rocky, she should grab his arms and make him stop. Third, there really are times when immoral behavior needs to be criminalized. Shooting people or stoning them should be against the law. Of course, this talk hasn't even begun to make clear when interference is good or what kind of interference is good. I just wanted to point out that I'm not trying to say that it's never warranted. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. It's a difficult question to sort out. But constantly using relativism talk only makes sorting it out even more difficult. When people spout relativism, and then five minutes later, they try to get you fired because you didn't use exactly the right terminology for discussing some hot topic. You can tell that something has gone wrong. As everyone knows, our culture is in quite a mess right now. There are many reasons why, but I think that one of them is the prevalent but not really sincere use of the language of relativism. I mean, I don't mean that people are insincere either. They're just confused. Um, people's theory, relativism, doesn't match their practice or their real beliefs, occasionally trying to interfere. And so they pretty much can't help being um, inconsistent and acting a bit crazy sometimes. If this sounds like an advertisement for slowing down and getting a bit more philosophical, it is. That's exactly what I think is a good idea. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's turn to the second tool, the one that is nicely captured in the slogan, love the sinner and hate the sin. It's amazing how few people really understand this. People often think, quite rightly, that we should have a loving attitude towards everyone. And they notice that people who criticize others' moral behavior often do so in a harsh and unloving way. So in order to get people to act in a loving way, They decide that it's bad to form negative judgments about people's behavior. If there's no such thing as sin, then you can't hate sinners because there are no sinners to hate. In other words, they see moral relativism as a pathway to love. This might be behind Ella's rebuke of Rocky. She wants Rocky to love Nick, not hate him. And she sees that Rocky's mistreatment of Nick is rooted in the fact that Rocky doesn't like Nick's sins. So she tries to convince Rocky that there's no such thing as sin because moral truth is relative. relative. This will, she hopes, reorient Rocky's way of thinking so that he can love Nick. It's a strange but powerful fact that in this case, Ella has actually accepted the idea that we should hate sinners. Rocky thinks that we should hate sinners, and he believes in sin. So therefore, he thinks he should hate Nick. Ella agrees with Rocky that we should hate sinners, if there are any. But she also thinks it's bad to hate people, so she decides there aren't any sinners. But maybe Ella and Rocky are both wrong. Maybe we should not hate sinners. Maybe we should love sinners, but hate their sins. If Ella could learn to think like this, then she wouldn't have to appeal to moral relativism to defend Nick from Rocky. She could point out that although Nick's behavior needs improvement, we should still try to love and help him. Resorting to relativism isn't needed for this. As indicated earlier, I'm not trying to settle the question of when interference is warranted, nor am I trying to settle the question of what kind of interference is warranted. However, this talk of loving sinners does suggest that certain kinds of interference are problematic, namely those that aren't compatible with loving the person who's being interfered with. There's a difference between calling you out on something and being really harsh about it. There's a difference between disagreeing with you in public and organizing a hate-filled Twitter storm. There's a difference between firing you and trying to arrange it so that your entire future is ruined. I don't have well-formed thoughts on where to draw the line, and obviously it depends on many things. However, I do think that in recent years, we have been moving towards the idea that certain classes of offense and certain classes of offender are simply unforgivable. There's no way back ever. And that, I think, is incompatible with Christian charity. Even if, say, someone needs to be permanently barred from certain kinds of work, that needn't mean that he needs to be subjected to enormous amounts of hatred and excluded from social life forever and ever. We can hate the sin and take firm steps to prevent it from ever happening again without hating the sinner. I've just suggested two ways of thinking that would help Ella to protect Nick without resorting to moral relativism. Before leaving this topic, I'd like to bring up a possible objection to what I've been saying. Perhaps these alternate tools cannot be used in place of relativism as a way of protecting Nick from illegitimate interference because perhaps even making and expressing a moral judgment is already a form of illegitimate interference. In other words, maybe the mere act of telling you that your actions are wrong is all by itself already an unacceptable interference in your life. If that were true, then the alternative tools would not be enough. My first response is to say that even if voicing moral disagreement was illegitimate interference, Moral relativism still isn't needed. Instead, we could just have a moral rule that people should keep their moral judgments to themselves. In other words, we could say that morality is absolute, and it's okay for Rocky to disagree with Nick's behavior, so long as he doesn't voice this opinion. So, if merely voicing disagreement counts as unfair meddling in others' lives, the solution needn't be relativism. It could just be silence. My second response is to wonder about the psychological toughness of people who can't handle it when others disagree with them. Now, I do understand that some people have thin skin, and I don't think it's nice to be mean to people with thin skin. But even so, having really thin skin, it's a fault. It's not a virtue. I should be able to deal with it when you disagree with me. For example, I think it's okay to eat meat. Maybe you don't. Well, if you think that eating meat is wrong, you should be able to tell me that. Obviously, you have to choose the right time and place. Obviously, you have to do it in a polite fashion. Obviously, you should consider the possibility that it would be wiser to say nothing and let me figure it out on my own. Maybe you can tell me that I'm so, maybe you can tell that I'm just so amazingly sensitive But I might have a nervous breakdown if you raise the issue, so you think that on balance, it's better to just let it go. Fine. There are always specific considerations that need to be thought through, and kind people will think through all of this. But it remains the case that in principle, you have a right to voice your disagreement. It might make me uncomfortable. It might make me feel a bit pressured. But part of being a grown-up is dealing with the fact that people don't always agree with you. If I can't get through life without requiring everyone to be really nice to me all the time and always agree with me, then maybe I'm the one with the problem. Maybe instead of resorting to moral relativism, I should spend more time backpacking or join the army or whatever it takes to toughen me up. Above, I said that Ella's appeal to moral relativism was incoherent inasmuch as she is appealing to it in order to make a point about morality. But now I want to discuss a more subtle version of Ella's approach, one that might not suffer from this flaw. Maybe she isn't a total moral relativist. Maybe she's just a relativist about some moral issues. In particular, maybe her idea is this, morality is absolute whenever your actions affect other people, but when your actions affect only yourself, then morality is relative. In other words, this theory holds that interpersonal morality is absolute, but personal morality is relative. So, for example, the obligation not to kill innocent people isn't one of those things that's true for some people, but not true for others, because it concerns others. But, for example, the obligation not to get outrageously drunk or not to use pornography is one of those things that's true for some people, but not true for others, because it concerns only yourself. If my actions concern only me, then whether they are right or wrong is just true for me, you could say. So this theory is not self-defeating in the way that Ellis's first approach was. However, there are three considerations that make it seem pretty unimpressive. First, are there any good reasons for thinking that personal morality is relative, while interpersonal morality is absolute? It's just not clear why we should believe this. If it's wrong to harm others, why isn't it also wrong to harm myself? Aren't I a person too? For example, binge drinking will definitely hurt. me, And that's wrong. The fact that the person is me should be irrelevant. Second, the distinction between personal and interpersonal morality is not as clear as people sometimes wish to believe. If I harm myself, that will have spillover effects that will affect other people as well. The idea that I can become lazy or greedy or hedonistic without this harming others it's pretty naive. Third, I'm pretty sure that the real motive behind saying that personal morality is relative is the thought that actions that affect only me, if there are any such actions, that these actions are actions that other people shouldn't interfere with. Well, if interference is the issue, then we should return to the points that we were making before. In order to argue that interference is bad with regard to a certain realm of action, it's not necessary to say that moral relativism holds sway in that realm. One can just as easily stick to moral absolutism, but then add A, that making a moral judgment doesn't mean forcing the other person to abide by it, and B, that we can hate the sin without hating the sinner. So overall, Even though there's no incoherence in this second version of Ella's position, the version that distinguishes personal from interpersonal morality, it's still not a very convincing position. Now let me take the analysis one step further. I have suggested that people adopt a relativistic stance or use relativistic language because they want to block what they see as unjust interference. But there might be a deeper issue. There's a certain attitude towards life that I think is now pretty widespread in our culture. I call it feelings management. The idea of feelings management is the idea that the task of living consists in managing your feelings so that on balance, they're as positive as they can be. Now I've chosen the word feelings on purpose and to straddle both emotions and physical sensations. Feelings management is concerned with both and figuring out how they are related is a crucial task for feelings management. For example, running a marathon is pretty unpleasant, but having run a marathon gives you a sense of accomplishment, bragging rights, and so on. For some people, the negative sensations of pain and fatigue involved in running the race just don't outweigh the positive emotions at the end. While for others, they do. And of course, you don't just have to balance physical sensations against emotions. You also have to balance physical sensations against other physical sensations and emotions against other emotions. It's very complicated. But anyway, feelings management is about somehow juggling your physical sensations and your emotions in such a way that overall, you end up feeling as good as possible. I think that for a lot of people, trying to live a good life means being a good feelings manager. You try to avoid physical pain, but perhaps a little physical pain is a price worth paying for the sake of being healthier. You enjoy your successes, but you try to avoid gloating about them because when others feel bad in comparison, you end up feeling guilty. You try to avoid feeling guilty, but maybe a little bit of guilt helps spur you on to accomplish something satisfying. Regardless, the ultimate test through all of this is how it makes you feel. Now notice when I first gave the example of running a marathon, I noted that running a marathon seems to be a good choice for some feelings managers but a bad choice for others. What works for you might not work for me. This really does seem to be a realm where relativity reigns, right? How, you, how feelings balance out. It differs from person to person. All right, so let's look at this more generally. If life is all about feelings management, then anything that affects our feelings is a candidate for relativism. Now, surely moral judgments affect our feelings, So maybe feelings management is a further explanation of why people are attracted to moral relativism. If a certain moral ideal is too challenging, if I keep failing and feeling guilty, or if adhering to it means I'll have to miss out on pleasures I'm unwilling to give up, then I can just say that that moral idea isn't true for me. Moral relativism is great for minimizing and even eliminating guilt. If, on the other hand, I like behaving in a certain way, then maybe I will decide that this way of acting is right for me. Once I've decided that, I will feel even better about that kind of action, and I will be more likely to persist in doing it. But notice, if the bottom line concern is how I feel, then there won't be any sense in thinking about morality as something objective or absolute, but only about how it works for me. Now, if you'll forgive a brief side remark, I'd like to say that this seems to apply to forms of relativism that aren't moral relativism. Some people think, or anyway, say that the existence of God is relative or that human nature is relative. No one would ever say that the existence of gravity was relative or that the nature of copper was relative. So why be a relativist about God or human nature? The answer seems to be feelings management. Okay, back to the main line of thought. There are certain deep philosophical issues that are hard to argue about. Usually the way you try to settle some dispute in anything is by appealing to a deeper principle. For example, you can sometimes settle a dispute in engineering by appealing to some principle in physics or chemistry. But in philosophy, pretty much by definition, you're trying to get as close to the foundations as you can. At a certain point, you can't appeal to principles any deeper than the ones that you're considering because you've already hit the foundation. This doesn't mean that there's no truth about the matter, and it doesn't mean that it can't be discovered, but it does mean that making progress is very difficult. I think we're close to being at this sort of point. I don't think that living a good life is a matter of feelings management. I think it's about fully living out the kind of being that we are, a rational animal of a certain sort. Just as there's a way for chickens to flourish or fail to flourish, so too there is a way for humans to flourish or fail to flourish. Morality, in my view, and this is the Thomistic thing to say, is a matter of flourishing, and wrong actions are those in which we fail to actualize ourselves in the right way, those in which we fail to flourish, probably also thereby harming others or harming ourselves, or most likely both. Anyway, if that's right or anything close to right, then feelings management is just the wrong approach to life. The goal of life isn't to feel good because we all know it's possible to feel pretty good while doing things that aren't good examples of being human. And we also know it's possible to train ourselves to feel good about bad things. Okay, I'm almost done. I have claimed that people appeal to relativism in order to promote social or legal tolerance. I've claimed that doing so is self undermining and I've claimed that it isn't necessary. I've also claimed without much in the way of argument or even discussion that relativism is false. Anyway, I would like to conclude by suggesting that relativism is actually harmful. One reason why relativism is harmful has been mentioned already. It makes it much harder to think clearly about when we ought to interfere with others' actions. If we are constantly insisting that there's no right and wrong, and then occasionally lashing out with cancellation campaigns or big jail sentences, we're not in a good position to think things through in an organized way. But there's a deeper problem. Relativism is harmful because it means in the end that there's no right or wrong way to live your life If there's no right or wrong way to live, then there's no such thing as success or failure. No such thing as a life lived well or a life lived badly. If that's so, then in a very important sense, life is meaningless. It might be enjoyable or not enjoyable, but that's not the same thing. Indeed, although above I suggested that many people use relativism as part of feelings management, there have been philosophers for whom relativism was a source of suffering. So Nietzsche seems like an example here. My point, at any rate, is that appeals to relativism aren't just bad arguments. They also contribute to the general feeling that life is pointless. That's not good. Isn't the the incidence of misery, depression, and suicide high enough I think we do better to drop all this relativism talk and relearn how to talk about what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. People don't agree on these topics, that's true. It might lead to conflict, but it's not as if we don't have conflict now. Obviously, all of this is only the beginning of a very long investigation. Moral relativism can ultimately be overcome only through a positive view of what ethics is about, and also through getting the contents of that ethics right. You have to see that life isn't about feelings management, and you have to see that ethical principles involve not only judgments about what's right and wrong, but also about when it and is isn't legitimate to interfere with others' decisions. If we get all that straight, we will no longer be tempted by relativism. Instead, we'll be drawn to the truth,